Hello and welcome to another episode of Covenant and Conversation with me, Rabbi Sachs. In each new episode, we'll explore a Jewish idea from the Hebrew Bible based on the Torah reading of the week. Miketz, the universal and the particular. The story of Joseph is one of those rare narratives in Tanakh in which a Jew comes to play a prominent part in a Gentile society. The others are notably the books of Esther and Daniel. And I want here to explore one facet of that scenario. How does a Jew speak to a non-Jew about God? What is particular and what is universal in the religious life? In its approach to this, Judaism is unique. On the one hand, we believe the God of Abraham is the God of everyone. We are all Jew and non-Jew alike, made in God's image and likeness. On the other hand, the religion of Abraham is not and not intended to be the religion of everyone. It was born in the specific covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants. We say in our prayers that, that God chose us from all the peoples. So how does this work out in practice? When Joseph, son of Jacob, meets Pharaoh, king of Egypt, what concepts do they share and what remains untranslatable? The Torah answers this question deftly and subtly. When Joseph is brought from prison to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, both men refer to God, always using the word Elohim. The word appears seven times in the scene, always in the biblical, always in biblical narrative, a significant number. The first five are spoken by Joseph. God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. God has shown Pharaoh what he's going to do. The matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. The last two are uttered by Pharaoh himself. After Joseph has interpreted the dreams, stated the problem, seven years of famine, provide the, the solution, store up grain in the years of plenty, and advised him to appoint a wise and discerning man to oversee the project. And then we read the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and all his officials, so Pharaoh asked them, can, anyone, can we find anyone like this man in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there's no one as discerning and wise as you are. Now this is surprising, the Egypt of the pharaohs was not a monotheistic culture. It was a place of many gods and goddesses, the sun, the Nile, and so on. To be sure, there was a brief period under Amenhotep IV when the official religion was reformed in the direction of monolatry, that is, worship of one god without disputing the existence of others. But this was short-lived and certainly not at the time of Joseph. The entire biblical portrayal of Egypt is predicated on their belief in many gods against whom God executed justice uh, at the time of the plagues. So why then does Joseph take it for granted that Pharaoh will understand his reference to God and be right? Because Pharaoh twice used the word Elohim himself. What is the significance of calling God Elohim? The Hebrew Bible has two primary ways of referring to God. The four-letter name we allude to is Hashem, yud Vavke, the name par excellence, and the word Elohim. The sages understood the difference in terms of the distinction between God as justice, Elohim, and God as mercy, Hashem. However, the philosopher-poet 
of the 11th century, Yehuda Halevi, proposed a quite different distinction, based not on ethical attributes, but on modes of relationship, a view revived in the 20th century by Martin Buber in his distinction between an I-it and an I-thou relationship. Halevi's view was this. The ancients worshipped the forces of nature, which they personified as gods, and they called each one of them an El or Eloah. So the word El means, El means a force, a power of nature. But the fundamental difference between those cultures and Judaism was that Judaism believed that the forces of nature are not independent or autonomous. They represent a single totality, one creative will, the author of being. So the Torah speaks not of El, but Elohim, in the plural meaning the sum of all forces, the totality of all powers. In today's language, we might say that Elohim is God as he is disclosed by science, the Big Bang, the various forces that give the universe its configuration, and the genetic code that shapes life from the simplest bacterium to Homo sapiens. Hashem is a word of a different kind. It is, according to Halevi, God's name. Just as the first patriarch, which is a generic description, had a name, namely Abraham, and the generic description, the leader who led the Israelites out of Egypt, also had a proper name called Moses. So the author of being, Elohim, has a name, and his name is Hashem. The difference between proper names and generic dis descriptions is fundamental. Things have descriptions, but only people have proper names. When we call someone by name, we're engaged in a fundamental existential encounter. We are relating to them in their uniqueness and ours. We're opening ourselves up to them and inviting them to open themselves up to us. We are in Kant, Kant's famous distinction regarding them as ends, not means, as centers of value in themselves, not potential tools to the satisfaction of our desires. The very word Hashem represents a revolution in the religious life of humankind. It means that we relate to the totality of being, not as does a scientist, seeing it as something to be understood and controlled, but as does a poet, standing before it in reverence and awe, addressing and being addressed by it. Elohim is God as we encounter him in nature. Hashem is God as we encounter him in personal relationships, above all in speech, conversation, dialogue, words. Elohim is God as he's found in creation. Hashem is God as he's disclosed in revelation. Hence the tension in Judaism between the universal and the particular. Elohim, God as we encounter him in creation, is universal. But God as we hear him in revelation is particular. And this is mirrored in the way that Genesis' story develops. It begins with characters and events whose significance is that they are universal archetypes. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the Flood, the builders of Babel. The stories are all about the human condition as such. Obedience from rebellion, faith and fratricide, hubris and nemesis, technology and violence, the order God makes and the chaos we create. Not until the 12th chapter of Genesis 
does the Torah turn to the particular, to one family, Abraham and Sarah, and the covenant God enters into with them and their descendants. This duality is why Genesis speaks of two covenants, the first with Noah and all humanity after the flood, the second with Abraham and his descendants later given more detailed shape at Mount Sinai in the days of Moses. The Noahide covenant is universal with its seven basic moral commands. These are the minimal requirements of humanity as such the foundations of any decent society. The other is the richly detailed code of the 613 commandments that form Israel's unique constitution as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So there are universals of Judaism, creation, humanity as God's image, and the covenant with Noah. But there are also particularities, revelation, Israel as God's firstborn child, and the covenants with Abraham and the Jewish people at Sinai. The first represents the face of God accessible to all humankind. That second, that special and intimate personal relationship he has with the people he holds close, as disclosed in the Torah, Revelation, and Jewish history, Redemption. The word for the first, the universal, is Elohim, and for the second is God in his particularity, Hashem. We can now understand how Genesis works on the assumption that one aspect of God, Elohim, is intelligible to all human beings, regardless of whether they belong to the family of Abraham or not. So, for example, Elohim comes in a vision to Avimelech, king of Gerar, despite the fact that he's a pagan. The Hittites call Abraham, Nasi Elohim atabatochenu, you are a prince of God in our midst, using the word Elohim. Jacob, in his conversations with Lavan and later with Esav, uses the term Elohim. When he returns to the land of Canaan, the terror says that the terror of God, Elohim, fell on the surrounding towns. All these cases refer to individuals or groups who are outside the Abrahamic covenant, yet the Torah has no hesitation in ascribing to them the language of Elohim. That's why Joseph is able to assume that the Egyptians will understand the idea of Elohim, even though they are wholly unfamiliar with the idea of Hashem. This is made clear in two pointed contrasts. The first occurs in Genesis 39, Joseph's experience in the house of Potiphar. The chapter consistently and repeatedly uses the word Hashem in relation to Joseph. Hashem was with Joseph. Hashem gave him success in everything he did. But when Jake, Joseph speaks to Potiphar's wife, who's attempting to seduce him, he says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against Elohim? The second is the contrast between the Pharaoh who speaks to Joseph and twice uses the word Elohim, and the Pharaoh of Moses' day who says, Who is Hashem that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know Hashem and I will not let Israel go. An Egyptian can understand Elohim, the God of nature. He can't understand Hashem, the God of personal relationship. Judaism was and remains unique in its combination of universalism and particularism. We believe that God is the God of all humanity. He created all. He is accessible to all. He cares for all. He made a covenant with all. 
Yet there is also a relationship with God that is unique to the Jewish people. It alone has placed its national life under his direct sovereignty. It alone has risked its very existence on a divine covenant. It testifies in its history to the presence within it of a presence beyond history. As we search in the 21st century for a way to avoid the clash of civilizations, humanity can learn much from this ancient and still compelling way of understanding the human condition. We are all the image and likeness of God. There are universal principles of human dignity. They're expressed in the Noahide covenant, in human wisdom, and in that aspect of the one God we call Elohim. There is a global covenant of human solidarity. But each civilization is also unique. And we don't presume to judge any of them except insofar as they succeed or fail in honoring the basic universal principles of human dignity and justice. We as Jews rest secure in our relationship with God, the God who has revealed himself to us in the intimacy and particularity of love, whom we call Hashem. The challenge of an era of conflicting civilizations is best met by following the example of Abraham and Sarah and their children, as exemplified in Joseph's contribution to the economy and politics of Egypt, saving it and the region from famine. To be a Jew is to be true to our faith, while being a blessing to others, regardless of their faith. That is a formula for peace and graciousness in an age badly in need of both. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening. You can download a written version of my commentary and explore all my additional content by visiting www.rabbisax.org. This year, we also have an accompanying family edition of Covenant and Conversation aimed at connecting children and teenagers with these ideas and thoughts. For a family edition discussion sheet on this week's parasha, please go to www.rabbisax.org slash cc family edition.